So we turn to Job chapter 30, reading the entirety of that chapter. God's holy word from the book of Job, chapter 30, the entire chapter, God's word. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? Through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by by night in waste and desolation. They pick saltwort and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They're driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. And the goalies of the torrents, they must dwell in the holes of the earth and of rock. Among the bushes they bray, under their nettles they huddle together. A senseless, a nameless brood, they have been whipped out of the land. But now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me, they keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because they loosen my cord and oppress me, they've cast off restraint in my presence On my right hand, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As though a wide breach they, as through a wide breach they come amid the crash, they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help. And you do not answer me. I stand and you do not look at me. You've turned cruel to me. With your, with the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it. You toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death, to the house appointed for all living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Did I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came. When I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I am a brother of jackals. And a companion of ostriches, my skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. My lyre is tuned to mourning, and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. It's for the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. So if you look back over your life, who was your favorite teacher? Which coach do you remember fondly? Well, with the hindsight of maturity, your favorite often differs from that of the past. 
That is, during school, you preferred the easy teacher and the fun coach, and you complained about the one with high standards and hard work. For he assigned so much work and his grading was so strict that you dreaded his class. And yet, once you're out in the real world, it's the harder teacher that you end up appreciating. That drill sergeant of a teacher actually taught you something, and their strenuous class made you capable and skillful to succeed in other challenges, while those easy, fluff classes didn't really impart any lasting benefits. Yeah, mature reflection helps us to realize that some of the best things in life are the hardest. But while we are in those struggles and heavy labor, we can't imagine that it'll actually be good for us. Present pain blinds us to future gain. And as Job sits in one of the darkest crucibles ever recorded, he too has blinders on to the higher purposes of God for him and even for us in Christ. So as you remember, in the last chapter, Job just finished reminiscing about how rich and blessed his life once was. And one cannot deny how spectacular his days were, sparkling like a diamond in ideal lighting. Under the sweet friendship of God, he had wealth aplenty, a joyful family, and social honor out the wazoo. His uprightness and public morality gave him the Midas touch. He rescued the downcast, he adopted the desolate, and he sat as the king of comforters. And yet this, these soft textures and delicious treats of the past now run into a contrast. But now, Job's glorious history wrecks into his miserable present. But now they laugh at me. The universal respect has molded into mocking scorn and hateful laughter. In fact, this contrast is sharpened by a wordplay. In chapter 29, verse 24, Job's smiling is the same word as laughter here in verse 1. Thus, Job's kind smiling upon his neighbors has now been repaid with contemptible jesting. The good that he did is being repaid with evil. Those he blessed now make him the butt of their cruel jokes. And the respect he had is now the most bitter pill of shame. Indeed, in this first section of this chapter, most of the present agonies that Job laments about has to do with shame. And as you know, shame is not merely words that hurt your feelings, but it is more objective. It is concrete blows that harm you inside and out. Shame is the entire society labeling you as worthless and despicable, which crushes both your soul and it can rob you of your livelihood. Like cancel culture today, shame both trashes your name online and gets you, fi- gets you fired from your job. And yet, the identity of the shamer can make a huge difference. Who laughs at you is significant. Thus, who is this bullying Job with jokes? Well, it is those who are younger than him. Youths, upstarts, spit ridicule at Job which basically violates natural law. 
Everybody knows that you should respect your elders, and nearly every culture upholds this by customs and etiquette. But this natural order has been overturned in Job's case. And it gets worse for not, uh, it gets worse as not all the, all mouthy kids are the same. Thus he spe- spends the next seven verses painting a mural of these scornful youths. First he mentions their dads. These kids' fathers, Job would reject them from even being with the dogs of his flock. That is, the fathers were so untrustworthy and worthless, he wouldn't hire them to sit with his sheepdog, dogs. This means they're unhirable. You cannot trust them with the most menial and easy of jobs. Thus, these kids were raised by lazy and untrustworthy fathers, and sometimes the sins of the fathers get amplified by the kids which is the case here. Thus, he describes the lifestyle of these children. He says, healthy vigor perished within them, so they gnaw on drought in a desert wasteland. This gang of youths has been banished from society, so they bray among the bushes like wild donkeys. They live in dusty caves and dark ravines. The salty sap of shrubbery is the staple of their diet. And like a pack of hyenas, they roam the haunt of demons and their cackling echoes off off of empty rocks. But what's this a picture of? Well, this is not a sad description of homeless children. Rather, it portrays them as a gang of desert bandits. Indeed, there's a strong scent of moral depravity here. With lazy and unemployed dads, the kids took up a life of crime. So verse 8, it calls them a senseless, nameless brood, which has the force of being foolish villains. Thus, who mocks and ridicules Job as a worthless human, a shameful creature and a despicable thing? Well, it is those who are universally banished as terrorists. These are the homeless drug addicts who live off of muggings and assault. Such kids are not victims of hardship who beg for a Big Mac, but they are the irredeemable desperados who scavenge on people like jackals and dingoes. And the more shameful are your tormentors, the more painful is their scorn. For Job's public righteousness, he is being repaid evil by the worst scumbags. Such shame throbs like having birth pains and kidney stones at the same time. Job was the noble senator who saved the republic, and now he's laughed at by methods. This fall is worse than Humpty Dumpty. And it gets worse, for their verbal assaults now turn physical, verses 9 through 15. These gangbangers now roll up their sleeves for blows, and they make Job the theme of their, their coarse, mocking songs. They knew, use his name as a curse word. They drop J-bombs. The gang test and abhors Job so much that they make him a spittoon, after taking a dip of Copenhagen. 
Now, in verse 11, God is not in the text. Rather, the subject of this verb is, of this verse is this violent rabble. They are the ones who untie Job's cord of security and literally oppress him. Casting off all restraint and self-control, they pummel and harass Job without mercy. Job's feet, they kick out from under him. They besiege Job on every side. They break up his path, and then they profit off of his calamity. The more they, And the more they terrorize Job, the more money pads their pockets. This gang rolls over Job as if they're a mighty wave. They are a storm that hit him like a, ba- a battalion of Marines. Their hatred piles crushing terrors upon Job from every direction. The violence of their hostility blows his honor away like chaff in the wind. His prosperity prosperity has vanished like a cloud. Robbed and molested, shamed and tormented, these outlaws leave Job for dead in a ditch by an abandoned road, but no fine Samaritan walks by. And there is more, as we have not yet reached, the bottom of Job's agony. Next, he turns more inward and upward. That is, Job journals about his bodily torment and spiritual cruelty. He says his life is poured out upon him. This means that his life bud drains from his veins and stains his skin as if he's slowly bleeding to death. Dark days of affliction imprison him as the only thing he knows. At night, pain bores into his bone like an oil rig drilling for marrow. Agony gnaws on him like hungry rats who never rest. Job is so sapped that he has not even the strength to change his clothes. The body of Job is so gaunt that the collar of his shirt has slipped down to his waist and it squeezes him like a belt too tight. It's as if someone broke and bound his feet, but he can't get it off for relief. The physical torment of Job is nonstop, and no amount of aspirin or Vicodin helps him. An IV of morphine or whiskey by the gallon does him nothing to ease his pain. And these open wounds of bodily trauma sting sharper as spiritual salt is poured upon them. In verse 19, God does come into the picture. It says the Lord tosses Job into the mire of a pig pen so that he becomes the proverbial dust and ashes, covered with the grime of death. Like a dead man walking or a guy on a life support machine that was just unplugged, Job is already half dead. He cried out to God, but the Lord heard him not. He took a stand before God, but the divine sight saw him not. Unanswered prayer is the dagger of God that pierces him to the heart and is as if the hand of God is twisting it. He says cruel is the divine demeanor towards him. The arm of the Lord opposes him and hostile against him. Thus Job is certain that the Lord's going to kill him. 
It's just a matter of time before the Lord buries him in the grave and sends him down to Sheol. Job stands on the edge of an open grave, and God is giving him a push. The past friendship of God that was so sweet and harmonious has now devolved into the oppression of an enemy. As a merciless prosecutor and executioner, it's as if the Lord is hastening Job to the gallows. And one of the things that is so torturous about the brutality of God is that it conflicts with Job's high morality of divine imitation. Verse 25, he says, didn't I weep for the afflicted? I grieved for the needy? That is, Job, he sympathized and sided with the downcast to emulate the kindness of God as the father of the fatherless. Compassion for the abused is one of the great perfections of our God. And Job copied this wonderfully in his life. But now that Job is the naked orphan, the oppressed victim, the Lord has turned off his compassion? How can this be? How can Job imitate God to show kindness, and then God does not show the same to Job while he is in pain? Hence, the next line says, Job hoped for good, but evil came. He waited for light, but darkness entered. This is worse than an unanswered prayer, for it is praying for a blessing and getting spoon-fed accursed. It's asking for bread and being given a rock that breaks your teeth. The Lord dished out on Job the very opposite of what he prayed for. Thus he goes on, he says, literally the bowels of Job are boiling inside of him. The venom of God has given Job food poisoning, and he is unable to expel the toxin. Just as his body is curled up with stomach cramps, so his emotions rise with spiritual indigestion. His skin is burned so dark, it's not red from the sun, but it's black from the flame. Large swaths of ashy skin fall off of him. His bones are on fire inside of him. Job is so disfigured that he is kin, or has become kin, with jackals and a family with ostriches. The torment of God and the shame of society has dehumanized Job to the point of being more animal-like. He blends in with the jackals. He smells like the ostriches. Job has taken up residence in a zoo where people pay to gawk at the ugly and strange creatures of the wild. Job no longer holds membership in the human race. His DNA test reads, a beast. De-evolution has turned back the clock of Job into the missing link between humans and some lower form of life. And such dehumanization plays the soundtrack of Job's life as a dirge on repeat. His lyre knows only the tunes of sadness. His flute blows only the notes of weeping. As you know, we love to live and interpret our lives according to the song of the moment. 
important, and normally we enjoy a variety of music. Some days we dance to upbeat songs. After a breakup, a sad ballad fills our earbuds. We meditate to Beethoven, we reminisce to the blues, and we vent our anger to Metallica. And yet the radio station of Job is stuck on laments and funeral chants. All he hears is his own depression off-tune, and he cannot turn off the weeping in his head. Melancholy rings on repeat in his head, stabbing him with a migraine that won't quit. And this uneasing noise of despondency consumes the entire consciousness and existence of Job. It's the only flavor he tastes, the soul darkness he feels, and it's the only thought he can ponder. Hence, chained by pervasive unhappiness and pain, he can read his suffering merely as the cruelty of God. His logic is stuck on a single track. He is upright. Shame and agony have conquered him. And with these two premises, the only conclusion Job can draw is God must hate him. The Lord's now his enemy. Why else would God be cruel to him? And this limited logic was evident also in the last chapter. In the past, Job was righteous and blessed with an overflowing cup. These letters only spelled God's friendship to Job. And so now, if he's tormented in shame to the point of being an animal, this now means God is his foe. And with this, we come to see that Job, too, is stuck on the retribution principle. Now, he correctly rejected the retribution reasoning of the three friends, which went as follows. Job is suffering. He must have sinned. Thus, the Lord only deals with people as they deserve. But Job was upright, so this logic couldn't be right. On this, Job thinks better than his three friends. And yet he, too, is stuck on another tangent of retribution logic. When he was rich and respected, God was his friend. When he shame and banished, God hates him. There's no way his agony can be logically consistent with God's love. Thus, Job properly told the three friends not to read Providence. But now he, too, is reading Providence. Correctly, Job removed personal sin from the equation, but he interprets his affliction as only heralding God's animosity and hostility. He isn't suffering for sin, and so his suffering must be due to God's hatred. And in this, Job's reasoning also falls short. For we know the real reason why so much torment has stampeded over him. Why is Job suffering? Why did God let Satan have his way with Job? Well, it was not because God didn't care for Job, but it was precisely because Yahweh loved him. Remember that the Lord let Job be tested because he was showing off the uprightness of Job. 
Job was the Lord's champion that God put in the game of suffering in order to vanquish the evil one. This is like when a coach puts in his favorite player because he'll know he'll make the big big play and get a touchdown. It is a father making his daughter practice more so she can improve and succeed. Remember, God bragged upon Job in chapter 1. He was sure that Job could endure whatever the accuser threw at him. And such confidence is not hatred, but love. The Lord loved Job enough enough to make him his champion. True love doesn't let another be lazy to atrophy, but it deals out appropriate fitness to mature one's health and character. Just as walking is better for our bodies than sitting on the couch, so hardship is the spiritual exercise that makes strong our faith and godliness. And the love of God that made Job suffer is witnessed even brighter in our Savior Christ. Indeed, why was Jesus tested so bitterly? Why did Christ feel the venom of society's shame and scorn? Why did the soul of Jesus taste the vinegar poison of that cursed tree? Well, it had nothing to do with God's hatred, but it was thoroughly an expression of the Father's love for the Son. The Father desired that for the Son to become the champion of our redemption and the source of our salvation. God wanted Jesus to have the name above all names. And yet the humiliation of the incarnation was the only path to cross this finish line. The most glorious name had to be earned. To gain us as his people, Jesus had to pay the price. And the Father loved you enough to give up his Son to make you his own. He loved the Son so much that he gave Jesus greater glory by the agonizing cross. And this is the higher logic of God. Sometimes God makes us suffer not to punish us, not because he's unhappy with us, but because he loves us enough to be glorified through us. As our Lord said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. You are blessed when you suffer for the name of Christ. Why are your prayers unanswered at times? Because God is exercising your faith. Why does the Lord give you evil when you pray for good? Because sometimes he's happy with your performance and he wants to make you stronger. As Hebrews pointed out, we often learn the best by hardship and suffering. Sometimes the Lord kills us in order to bring us home to heaven to be with him. And these are the wise thoughts of God that he wants us to think after him. Such reasoning is strange and offensive to the earthly mind, but they are beautiful and comforting to the heart trained by the Spirit in wisdom. Because he loves you so, God sometimes has you drink from the cup of Job for your good 
and his glory. More so, our being purified through hardship is us participating in Christ. It is us being comforted to our sa- by our Savior who died and experienced the worst agony so that we could be saved all of grace. Thus, may you never take your mind off of Christ as the source of your everlasting salvation, especially in the dark days of your hardship. May we not doubt the imperishable love of God from which we cannot be separated, not by agony or illness, not by shame or scorn, not by life or death. For for by such affliction, God's love conforms us to Jesus. He glorifies himself through us, which enables us then to bless the Lord when the Lord gives and to bless the Lord when the Lord takes away. And to do this in the present and forever in heaven. Yes, this is the wisdom of the Lord, that he loves us enough to use us through suffering to bring glory to himself. And what could not be a higher calling? Amen. Let's pray.